This is Their Life Story Podcast with Robin Levine. I have always believed that everybody has something to teach all of us. In this series of interviews, I will talk to all types of people in order to learn from and be inspired by them and their life stories. My guest this week is Lotar Schaefer. Lotar is a retired doctor, a father of three, an adventurer, environmentalist, mountaineer, skier, and kayaker. In this episode, we talk about growing up in the Arctic, having an igloo to play in, working in the Arctic at the start of his career, swearing off airplane travel, and the four-year bicycle trip he and his girlfriend did around the Americas. Lotar talks about a lot of the cool places that he went to, including the Andes, Patagonia, the jungle, high altitude, and running from winter in eastern Canada, and biking slowly through the prairies. He met a lot of really amazing people on this trip and saw firsthand the effect of climate change on a large part of the world. He has a lot of really cool insights on what he thinks causing climate change, and I think it's really good for everyone to listen to. Lotar, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're most welcome. Are you born in Germany or were you born in Canada? No, I was actually born in Canada. Uh, My parents had recently uh, immigrated to Canada from Germany. And uh, I was born in a village up in the Arctic called Aklavik. And that just happened to be where my father was working at the time. So, uh, yeah, I actually spent uh, the first four years of my life living in the Arctic, first in Aklavik, the first nine months, and then a couple of years in uh, the Eastern Arctic in a small community in Baffin Island called Pangertang. <laughs> wow. So do you remember anything from, from those first four years? No, I mean, we were four years, I was four years old when we moved south. And, and uh, so, I, you know, I, I think my first memories are maybe colored by seeing home movies that my parents were making at the time. So I, I have some memories, but they're mostly things that are in those home movies. <laughs> oh, cool. What, what, were, what were the things in the home movies? Well, uh, the thing that I remember is my father was working as a physician up there in Pangertung. So he had a local uh, Inuit man who was sort of the doctor's assistant and organized a lot of things for the doctors. Anyway, my mother uh, broke her leg uh, on a slope behind the house we were living in while she was skiing on one spring day. And she had to go out to the south to Montreal to have the the bone set, uh, pinned actually. And so you know, my father with us young kids was uh, alone, a single parent for some months because there were no scheduled flights to that part of the Arctic in those years. That was in the mid fifties. And oh, wow. uh, so Etwanga, the uh, local man who was my father's uh, assistant, built us an igloo as kind of a play igloo outside the house to console us kids, you know, you know, suffering the lack of our mother. And so that's my earliest memory is, is being uh, uh, pushed into this uh, igloo and coming out of it. And, you know, it was just a really exciting time. That's so cool. 
That's uh-huh. so cool. You spent some of your <laughs> earliest years in an igloo. <laughs> well, we didn't live in it, but it was like our play igloo. <laughs> you yeah. know, maybe uh, growing up in the Arctic like that might have been one of the reasons why I kind of gravitated towards uh, adventures and maybe unconventional uh, uh, yeah, experiences in life. Um, have you been back to the Arctic as an adult? Uh, definitely. Like I spent two years, uh, working as a physician up in, in Nuvik, which is, uh, not too far from, uh, Aklavik where I was born. So that's on the Eastern channel of the, uh, Mackenzie Delta. So I spent two years there and, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I still have fond memories of, uh, the Arctic of my childhood. And also I had an excellent you know, two years living in Inuvik, and I would go back, but maybe not to live, you know, but certainly for a visit. (laughs) What were you doing for fun up there when you weren't being a doctor, when you weren't working? Oh, get out and I did a lot of skiing, Uh, cross-country ski trails were close to where I was living, Uh, and that was kind of interesting, you know, I only had to use one kind of wax, and that's polar, (laughs) it was always, it was always very cold, um, yeah, I did a little bit of, uh, hiking in the Richardson Mountains, which is, uh, west of the Delta, where I was living, uh, did a couple of canoe trips, there was always something to do. That's so cool, have you, have you gone back to Germany much, growing up, as an adult too? Uh, not so much as an adult. Uh, the last time I was in Europe was 2002 and, I uh, went over there for the full summer, the school holidays and, uh, kind of reconnected with some of our relatives in Germany, but I haven't been back since then. And, uh, you know, I, I, I am drawn to go back to Europe, go back to Germany, but I have also pretty much sworn off of airplane travel for climate reasons. And uh, of course, now we're in the pandemic and travel, you know, across large distances has become much more difficult. And yeah, so I, I don't know if I'll ever go back to Europe. It's, it's an open question. What was the big factor for you and your girlfriend, Debbie, that made you guys swear off? Like, and just, just be like, we're biking. If we want to go somewhere, we're biking. Uh, what, what was the tipping point for you where you're like, I'm not flying anymore if I can avoid it? You know, I've been talking and thinking about not flying for many, many years. And uh, I think the last time I flew for, for pleasure was to Cuba in 2005, I believe it was. Uh, but I've been aware of climate change since 1980 or thereabouts. And, uh, you know, the more I've read about it, the more I'm convinced that we really have to resign ourselves to live with less energy consumption. And being a Canadian, you know, on a per capita basis, we are energy gluttons on a global scale. And, you know, unless we all do our part, there's no way that we can solve the climate crisis and we've already let too many years go by since the science has been proven and it's certainly not controversial the science is proven uh we've let so much time go by that we don't have a a lot of window of opportunity to prevent uh i would say climate chaos 
And so, you know, I, I had to step up to the plate and I've been preaching, you know, energy conservation, uh, living a more local lifestyle for so long. I really would have no credibility unless I lived by those words myself. I think it's really good for like a person like me who I've always wanted to go to South America. And now I'm like, well, Lothar did it by bike. I, that, that's my new goal is to do it by bike now. Cause I, I always wanted to do it. And I, I, I hate um, using by flying too and, and hurting the planet unnecessarily. Cause it, it's, we're all, we all consume, but, uh, but you were a good, yeah. example. you were a good role model by doing that. Well, you know, and I want to point out, it wasn't actually a sacrifice. The one thing you do need uh, in order to travel by self-propelled means is you need more time. But, you know, other than that, it is no sacrifice to slow down your speed of travel. It actually comes with huge rewards. And I, you know, the, the longer we were on this bicycle journey through the Americas, the more we realized that the slower we travel, the more time we spend in an area before moving on, the better it gets. Just the depth of the experiences, the, the human interactions, the opportunities to appreciate and learn something of local cultures. These things all get better the slower you go. Yeah, and I, I first I was like, okay, so they they did this bike trip, and I'm thinking of it as like they're just going, 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 and I was like, no, that's not how they did it at all. They, you guys stopped, and you and you like you hunkered down in a place when you liked it, or when you met people you liked. And also, I mean, because we weren't on a schedule, we were able to uh, change our minds, go in totally different directions than we may have imagined that we would go. Uh, but I also have to say, we also didn't really plan or lay out an itinerary. We had a general concept. We're going to bike around the Americas. If we're lucky and, and things go well, we'll end up at the southern end of South America. Don't, we didn't know how we would go from there or what we would do at, at that point. But that was just the general concept. And we intentionally left all the details uh, just unplanned. You know, this wasn't a job, you know. I even told my kids, I don't know how long we're gonna be gone for. It could be two years, it could be as long as five years, it'll be in that range. So obviously leaving a very wide range there. <laughs> and that's the way it worked out. You know, for me, it was four years and a month, you know, from when we left home to when I got back. That is such an epic trip. Like, to, like, I don't know very many people that have gone on a four year adventure, four years trip. And like, and you did, and you didn't ever. You never flew home in between. You didn't. No. You, you were gone, and then you came back four years later. Yeah, I wanted to make a commitment. This wasn't just a holiday, like a long holiday. Some people said, "Oh, what a great holiday you're having." It wasn't a holiday. It was a phase of life. You might say an exploration of nomadism. You know traveling, moving, not settling down in a place of residence for a, you know, any period of time. I mean, we did stop here and there for as long as three weeks. I think that was the longest span of time we, we weren't moving. But it was really an exploration of, of a nomadic lifestyle. And to 
kind of test the boundaries of what that could offer us, you know, in terms of experiences, in terms of personal growth, uh, interactions, cultural explorations, that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. What's it feel like to be a nomad for four years? Well, you know, it's not for everybody, but it definitely suited me. And even after four years, I wasn't tired of it. Um, but the pull of home was becoming stronger and stronger. You know, even after, say, three years, I was starting to think more and more about the things I was missing by not being at home. Uh, the comfort of one's own home, the circle of family and friends that we have. And I've got some real deep roots in this community where I live, uh, and it's my home. And the longer I was away, the f more I felt the pull. I wanted to come home. It was like a magnet, a strong magnet, you know. So, you know, in that last year of traveling, it was like all roads are leading me back home. <laughs> Gotta, I want to get there. <laughs> And, you know, for Debbie, it was even more urgent. Like she maybe is not as, mm, perhaps she's not as much of a nomad as I am in my heart. So for her, it was quite a sacrifice, I would say. She left home saying no more than two years. And for her, it turned into three and a half years. So much longer than she anticipated. And, you know, so she came home a little earlier and I stayed a bit longer, uh, and in the end, it all worked out. <laughs> it's an amazingly long trip, and it, it's cool that like she didn't feel like she had to stay for the whole time because she still stayed three and a half years. That's so it's just so long. Yeah, yeah. I, I think for her it was a bit tougher, and and um, yeah. So and. You know, to be quite frank, that that was also a source of some tension for us, you know, because I was more enthusiastic, more relaxed about continuing traveling, 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 not at all getting tired of it. And for her, she felt more like she was missing the community, her circle of friends, etc. So it was a bit of a, a point of tension between us right from the get go. And it's not easy. That's the other thing I want to say. Uh, traveling like that, you know, as a couple is a real stress test. <laughs> uh, traveling is not the easiest way to live. You know, you're faced with uncertainty every day. It's not like going to a job uh, where it's pretty routine. There's always the potential and occurrence of unexpected events, whether it's a breakdown or difficulties on the road or the people you meet, you know, it's just so much unpredictability. So uh, this lifestyle isn't for everyone, but if you, if, if you thrive on uncertainty and surprises, it's, it's highly addictive. And for me, it proved to be a very addictive way of living. <laughs> have, have you always been like the adventurous type ever since you grew up in the, the Northwest Territories? Yeah, you know, I would say I was always looking for adventure. Um, I do like unpredictability. Um, 
And it's not that I'm an adrenaline junkie, although some people have accused me of that, uh, but I also just love being in nature. And uh, one thing about this long bicycle journey is I learned so much about uh, different types of nature than what we're used to here in West Central British Columbia, which is a very lush landscape. We have streams and rivers and lakes everywhere, vast forests, you know, but I hadn't really spent a lot of time in desert landscapes, for example, uh, Altiplano, you know, traveling at elevations of 4,000 meters. That was all new to me. Um, so, you know, traveling through the Americas was really an eye-opener in terms of the types of landscapes there are in this world. And it was just so exciting just to experience all these different things. Yeah, I, I feel like it's like a privilege to be able to see what the world can offer to, be, to go on that trip, but you earned it. You, you had to earn it all. Yeah, and you know, the beautiful thing about a bicycle as a means of travel is that you're out there. You are in the elements. You're, you're not in any sense in a bubble or a cocoon the way you are in a vehicle. So you feel everything. You feel the heat. You feel the sun. You feel the cold. You feel the wind, uh, the rain. Uh, you're in it. And, and so that really um, intensifies the whole experience. I noticed that even when we were riding uh, roads, you know, near the beginning of the trip and then at the end that I was familiar with from driving on a in a vehicle, the experience on a bicycle is different, you know. So even Highway 16 here from Smithers to Prince George, how many times have I driven that in my life? But to ride it on a bicycle for the first time was like a real eye-opener. You just notice details and, and places that you would just never notice in a car. Yeah, it never got boring. <laughs> I also notice when you're biking, every like you notice the hills a lot more. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And that was reinforced to me so many times. You know, I, I can think of an example in Mexico where we were in the mountainous part of sort of central Mexico and we ran into a bunch of motorcyclists, Mexican motorcyclists, and they were on big machines and, and they were interested in us because we're on funny bicycles. They're recumbent bicycles. So they, they stopped and we chatted for quite a while. And I was asking them about this one route that we were thinking of as a side trip. And I asked, so is, it, is there any climbing? Is, are there any hills that we have to go up? And they said, oh, no, it's all easy. Todo plano, plano. It's all flat. And uh, for one reason or another, we didn't go that way. But I later talked to a guy who was hosting us. And he knew that road. And he said, that was that was not true. That's a really steep road. It's full of hills, but they wouldn't notice on their motorbikes. They just, you know, push the throttle a little bit and they're up and, and they think, oh, that was nothing. And it made me think, yeah, you know, in a, in a car, if you're traveling in a car, you don't really notice the, 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 the elevation gain and loss that much, but you sure feel it on a bicycle. <laughs> I, I really noticed that too. Did you have any breaking points like with all the weather and stuff and like different difficult situations? Did you have points where, where it was like almost too much to bear? Uh, I would say there were a variety of stresses that we noticed. So for example, we were in the Maritimes and it was getting into 
to Octor. And our initial plan was let's ride across Canada, including maybe two or three weeks in Newfoundland before we start going south into the United States. So that was the, the first four months of our trip was just within Canada, basically. Well, we got to uh, Nova Scotia and now it's mid-October and we're getting nighttime frost, you know, going down to minus five, minus seven. Well, we knew this is too late to go to Newfoundland. So that was a bit of a stress. And then riding through New England, we were constantly being chased by winter. So that was one, one issue. Then, you know, in Central America, Mexico and Central America, the heat and the humidity, that was really hard to get used to. And for Debbie, she never did really get used to it. Like heat and humidity, that combination on a bicycle, and in our position on those recumbent bicycles, it, it feels as if you're a solar heating panel, you know, a hot water heating panel. So, you know, the heat was a definite stressor, and that was a constant throughout Central America. And then once we got into the Andes, of course, altitude helped, you know, so we'd have warm days but cool nights, so that made it a little easier until, of course, we got to the Altiplano and then the nights got too cold. You know, we really noticed with the thin air and, and the dryness of the air that as soon as the sun sets below the horizon around 6 p.m. up in the Altiplano in Bolivia, uh, although you're close to the equator, as soon as that sun set, you felt an instant cold come into the air. Like it was an instant drop of maybe 20 degrees Celsius. And wow. you just re we just had to retreat into our tent, and that was it. Day is done. Time to go to sleep. <laughs> Stay warm in the sleeping bag, and that's it. So, you know, just those extremes of, of, of warm days and then suddenly really cold nights. Um, so those are the kind of stresses. Down in southern Patagonia, wind was sometimes a real factor like fortunately most of the time the wind was in our favor because we were going north to south and that's the winds usually blow out of the northwest uh but yeah there, there were some days there where, where we were actually pushing into the wind and it was almost impossible to make any headway it was just so hard <laughs> and with that weather stuff is the hardest part like mentally it, it wears down on you yeah, you know, you, you know, the mental challenges, I think, are probably more than physical. You know, it, you have to become very accepting of what you are dealing with, you know, and, and part of that is modifying your pace. So, for in, instance, in the heat in the tropical sun, we would have to just make that con conscious effort to take a cool down break in the shade. And even if it was only for five minutes, it just made all the difference. Five minutes after an hour of riding in the hot sun, pull into a shady place under a tree and just cool down for five minutes. It just made all the difference. Drink a little extra fluids. That was always important. But you know, we always had to keep reminding ourselves, look, this isn't a job. If the wind is too much, we just stop. Uh, you know, sometimes we'd imagine, okay, here's where we'll get to today. And then it proves to be too difficult. Well, just change your expectations, you know, and, and, and uh, stop sooner, you know. And, and yeah, we, weren't, we, we had the good fortune to not be on a schedule. 
we met a lot of travelers who were on a schedule because they had a deadline, you know, to get to a certain place to, to maybe take a flight back home or whatever they had to do. And for them, there was a lot of stress. And for me, that, that wouldn't have been worth it. You know, I, I just didn't want to have that kind of uh, schedule to deal with. So we were lucky. We had all the time in the world that we needed. So not having a schedule was really good for not being stressed out. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is just not to um, have too many expectations, you know, let's just take every day as it unfolds. Let's, let's see where we end up at. Let's see what, what people we meet today. Uh, And always having an attitude of being open to a change of plans. You know, so for example, if we run into somebody and they say, Hey, this is happening. We, why don't you come with us? You know, there's a, a fiesta or there's a party or, you know, hey, why don't you come with us? And we took advantage. We, we did that. You know, we, we, we got adopted into so many people's lives, you know, temporarily. And, and we ha- took full advantage. And those are some of the most outstanding memories from the whole trip. It's just things that were totally unexpected. and and we took advantage of an opportunity when it came up. Can you tell me a particular story about a time like that? Um, okay, we were up in uh, uh, sort of a cloud forest area of Tamaulipas State in northern Mexico and uh, ended up at a village fiesta. And uh, these things are, are just great. Like every village has a, a saint's day that they have a big party so we were up there and ended up falling into conversation with some people from a nearby city and uh, one of them spoke pretty good English the rest were pretty much you know Spanish unilingual but you know by then we were starting to pick up some Spanish and getting better at it anyway uh, after the fiesta uh, they invited us to call them up when we were passing through their city so that happened a few days later and you know, we ended up just hanging out with this family for a whole week. And uh, the guy who spoke pretty good English, he was working. He worked for a bus company. But uh, during the day, we were hanging out with his wife and she didn't speak any English. So this was great. It was like Spanish immersion. And uh, Josefina was her name. Her and Deb, they really bonded in the kitchen because they both love to cook and and somehow you know they communicate with body language and learning a few words and uh, we just had a great time and we stayed with that family for a week we got to know many of their extended family uh uh one of the people was looking after the local museum so he gave us a personalized tour of the museum there uh and they took us for a few excursions out to some waterfalls and and swimming holes in the mountains and that just opened our eyes like, okay, you know, these people are so open and so hospitable. And it was a kind of a, an omen and a harbinger of what the whole journey would be like. We, we had so many positive experiences with local people wherever we went in every country that we, we traveled through. And uh, this was a real lesson, you know, the, the inherent hospitality of people across cultures and and 
you know, different traditions, all humans have this trait of hospitality and looking after each other. And we, we took a full advantage of that. Did it surprise you a bit just how hospitable people were everywhere you went? Uh, not so much surprised as it reinforced what, what I've experienced before on other travels. And, uh, you know, I've read quite widely about different cultures and histories. And I think I was always aware that people from all cultural backgrounds share this attitude of hospitality and, and, and looking after each other. It, it's just a, a very human trait. And, you know, I, one thing that, that I notice is that as a cyclist, you are, you're in a position of vulnerability and people appreciate that when you're riding by, they see that you're not in a bubble, you know, in a car, you're, you, sometimes your people are behind tinted windows and it's almost like they're, they're in a security bubble of some sort. On a bicycle, you're out there, you're in the open. People shout at you in the streets, uh, usually friendly shouts, you know, <laughs> maybe not, but usually friendly. But you're, you're out there, you're in the elements, you're in the society. And so, you know, it's, it's a position of vulnerability and people respond to that. And I think they responded very positive, positively to our obvious vulnerability by looking after us. So for example, Mexico or some of the Central American countries, they have pretty high rates of, of crime, you know, on the global scale and, really? and including violent crime. But we felt more like the people were protecting us from those currents with you know in their society so for example in the border area of northern mexico people were always warning us about you know don't travel at night be aware that the cartels are active in this area just you know stay on the main roads or they would tell us if we'd ask them about a route that we were thinking of doing they would let us know if they thought it was unsafe and we would modify our plans accordingly so we had a lot of help that way from local people wherever we went. And that's the other advantage of traveling slowly is that you are made aware of what kind of problems you might anticipate in the area that you're traveling towards. And uh, mind you, sometimes you had to take that with a grain of salt. You know, I remember uh, the first night we were in Peru, we had uh, crossed over from Ecuador and uh, during the course of uh, the border crossing, we met another cyclist who happened to be from Quebec. So we joined forces and rode to the nearest Peruvian village. And as we rode into the village, uh, a bunch of guys who were sharing a beer in the street invited us to join them. So we ended up drinking many beers with those guys. And it was really funny. Like they were, they were really happy that that we joined them and were part of their circle. And they were telling us, uh, yeah, you know, this is a really safe place, uh, all good people here, but just be careful in the rest of Peru, especially down on the coast, you know, don't just be really careful. And 
we often heard this refrain about people warning us about the next country or the next region or expressing surprise that nothing had happened to us in the place we had come from. And I've noticed this in some of my other travels uh, is that people uh, are sometimes prejudiced against people from the neighboring region or the next country or a different tribe, depending on, you know, what, what you're talking about. Um, so, you know, some of the information when they warned us about things we would take with a grain of salt and try and get more information. <laughs> do, do you think your like vibe you guys put out was kind of like worked in your favor? Uh, the vibe that we exude? Yeah. Like just like a laid back mellow vibe and people are like, Oh, I like these guys. But yes. I, you know, I think that uh, touches on a point, you know, um, on a previous visit to Mexico, we met this Canadian guy who had probably two decades of cycle touring experience throughout Latin America. He, he was a Spanish teacher himself. So that, that was his interest in Latin America. But anyway, he was, uh, firmly of the opinion that if you exude a sense of confidence in your body language, in your facial expressions, uh, in the way that you carry yourself, uh, and a happy vibe that you in turn attract positive energy. So, and I always took that as a, as a really good lesson. Yeah. You know, give people, a good impression and they will respond positively. If on the other hand, you go through the world, always looking over your shoulder, crouched over, worried, looking, you know, that's not a, a positive message and people might respond in a more negative way. So I have to say, maybe the good experiences that we had were partly related to our own I would say relaxed attitude towards what we were doing and um, confidence that people were generally not out to harm us. If anything, people are there to help us. And, you know, I think, I think that stood us in good stead, you know, having that sort of attitude. What were some really beautiful things that you saw or like a favorite country or favorite places that you saw along, along your journey? Oh, that's a tough one because, you know, I, I often have been asked this question and I say, well, we had a lot of favorite countries, you know, uh, but I guess some of the standouts, Mexico, Mexico is, is almost a subcontinent. It's, it's a, a country that contains within itself, many cultures, many traditions, many land forms. The variety is incredible. And the Mexican people are, are amongst the kindest that we met. Um, and that's in spite of their crime statistics, which are pretty horrendous. But, you know, it's mostly local people uh, being attacked by cartels, business people being shaken down by cartels for protection money, that kind of crime. Uh, cartels fighting each other. Um, so the stats are a little bit misleading because as a bicycle traveler, you're not really a target of that kind of uh, criminal activity. You might be a target for petty thievery, but highly unlikely that cartel people are going to go after a couple of 
a couple of people on bicycles like that would be a headache for them because you know if, if if as a foreigner you come to harm it attracts a lot of attention so you know we weren't really a natural target for anybody uh but yeah other areas for me the all of the andes was just like i was living a dream that was a big reason for me to make this journey was because i've always had a, a fascination with latin america in general but andean cultures and the history in the Andes, uh, the politics was kind of a special interest of mine. I don't know why, since I was in my early 20s. And I had never been to South America until this journey. And so that was a huge focus. And, and so we spent a full year just traversing the Andes from uh, the north to the south. From, a full uh, year. A full year, yeah. We actually more than a year, yeah. It was a year and uh, three months by the, you know, from from Cartagena in northern Colombia all the way to Ushuaia at the south end of the roads in in Tierra del Fuego was was about sixteen months and almost all of it in the Andes. So down in Chile, we hit the coast a couple of times, but other than that, it was all in the mountains. So every day, up and down, up and down. There was no level riding. But, you know, the landscapes were just so incredible and so many different cultures in that long, long uh, range. It's the longest mountain range in the planet. Uh, so, you know, and, and just, just the variety of landscapes from stark desert and high altiplano to the lush uh, mountain slopes going down into the Amazon uh, rainforest. You know, it was just incredible the variety of, of, of stuff that we saw in the Andes. So that was that was definitely a, a huge high point of the journey. Um, and Patagonia, you know, the southern end, southern half of Argentina and Chile was was also a big focus um, and. I'd always wanted to spend some time down there. So, you know, we spent about three, four months just in Patagonia. And again, it seemed to me like every day I was just living a, a dream. It was so good. <laughs> were you guys hiking at all or mostly like, obviously you were there to bike, but did you like, were there things that were better to do just hiking? Definitely. Yeah. And uh, so we did uh, quite a bit of hiking in Patagonia uh, some multi-day hikes uh, down on uh, the Chilean side at the very south end. Uh, and also in the north, uh, out of a city called Santa Marta on the Caribbean coast of Colombia, we went for a four-day hike up to an old uh, ancient city that was so-called lost city because uh, although the Spanish conquistadors had heard about this city, they had never actually seen it they were sort of blocked by the topography the very difficult landscape and then the city was later abandoned and then was sort of rediscovered as they say in the 20th century so that was a pretty cool hike that we did um and we kind of made a point of of not just riding bicycles we always wanted to go off on side trips do other stuff uh, in Ecuador, we actually took a bus down into the Amazon from Quito uh, to spend four days at a so-called eco-tourism lodge. Uh, and that was a really 
really cool experience. We were with local guides there and they showed us a lot of great stuff in the jungle. And that would not have been possible on a bicycle. Like we had to go down a river to get to the lodge and uh, it was quite, quite remote actually. What did you guys see when you were there? In the, at the, in the jungle? Yeah, at the eco resort. Uh, okay, well, in the jungle, everything is hiding from everything else because everything is either hunting or being hunted. So a lot of it was subtle. Uh, we saw or had pointed out to us a lot of really interesting insects, <laughs> which may not excite everybody, but, you know, Debbie's actually a wildlife ecologist. So for her, it was like being in heaven. Um, what else did we see? Uh, we saw some wonderful birds, uh, a bunch of different kinds of parrots, a uh, place down the river where the parrots were actually congregating at some kind of a mineral lick or a salt lick. So oh, that was awesome. pretty, yeah, that was pretty cool. Uh, we, oh God, what else do we see? Oh, there was a canopy uh, platform which took us way up into the highest trees in the canopy and it was just amazing looking out over the the sh sort of mist and shrouded tops of the trees and it was the amazon is very humid uh, they say that all the rainwater gets cycled between falling as rain being absorbed by the plants evaporating and transpiring to form clouds again. It happens like seven times or something as the air mass transits across the Amazon uh, system. So, I mean, it's a very wet, humid area. And just to see it from the level of the canopy was, was amazing, you know, and to see how far above the ground you are there and, and different life forms in the canopy and in the different stages from ground up. That was very interesting. Were you able to get a sense of, of whether or not the forests in the places that you went to were healthy or if they were being devastated and things were going extinct? Well, uh, that's a pretty interesting question. One thing we saw is that a lot of what people uh, call forests are actually plantations. So in other words, industrial, industrial scale logging is occurring in forests around the world and it shouldn't be a surprise to us that what we're doing here in North America is also being done in in tropical and uh, subtropical areas and all the way down into Patagonia in uh, Argentina and, and Chile. And uh, we were struck by the magnitude of the changes uh, to what had been natural forests uh, transformed into basically fiber plantations, pretty much the same as what we see here in British Columbia. Saw a lot of that in uh, South Central Chile. Uh, we saw a lot of it in Brazil. Uh, and interestingly enough, a lot of the um, tree plantations that we saw in places like Brazil are exotic species like eucalyptus, you know, originally from Australia. And now you find eucalyptus in the Andes, in the coast, coastal areas of Brazil, uh, Argentina. Um, yeah, so I mean, as an ecologist, uh, traveling the world is, is in this time of, I would say, peak human populations and 
peak industrial activity across the landscape. I don't know. It's it's a sad time if you're an ecologist and you see how much has been lost of of natural habitats where you have much more biodiversity than you have in in fiber plantations, for example. Was it heartbreaking for you guys to see a lot of the things? Oh yeah, 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 and to see how it continues, even though. In every country that we travel to, there are people who are fighting the good fight, people who understand that that uh, we are diminishing and simplifying uh, the ecology of the landscapes that we are living in. Um, but the status quo is continuing and and so you're still seeing massive deforestation. If anything, it has accelerated in some countries like Brazil in the last couple of years. And you still see in, in, in Central America, uh, natural rainforests, jungles being transformed into oil palm plantations and uh, uh, export crops like bananas. Um, so you're, you're seeing a simplification uh, and industrialization of ecologies in, in pretty much all the regions that we travel through. Having said that, there are also areas where there are signs of hope, like increasing areas that are being set aside as, as, as natural reserves or national parks. It's happening in, in parts of uh, Patagonia, in Chile and Argentina. So, you know, there are coalitions who are fighting uh, to preserve nature, you know, and, and there are conflicting trends. So who knows which way it will go in the future? You know, we keep hoping that humanity will wake up to the reality that we have to live within nature. Nature is what sustains us. And yet the predominant trends are still in the wrong direction. We still are destroying more nature than what we're, we're saving. It's really sad. I think I know the parks you're talking about are the Chris and Doug Thompson. They started those big parks yeah. with, the, with yeah. the governments down there. And then they like, they, it didn't happen, didn't happen. Then it happened really fast. And then they, uh, and then they got, they got their wish. Yeah. yeah. It was after Doug died that they, that they, that they really started to happen fast. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, the good news is that there, there's, uh, there are strong elements of civil society in all these countries, and uh, uh, mm -hmm. there are well-educated people. There are, are people who are studying all of these things, and so we do have the knowledge. The question is, do we have the political will to change the direction we're going in? And this is a, an open question in Canada as much as it is in Brazil or Colombia or Mexico. It's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a very, I would say, a critical time in the history of humanity, whether we are up to the challenge of, you might say, disciplining ourselves and pulling in our horns a little bit and living more modestly on this planet that we call home. I sometimes think it's like a few people that are like the heads of governments and corporations that are to blame, but there's way more people that like don't act because they think it's out of their control that than anything, you know, if maybe if we all did our part, we all went on our trips on bicycles, <laughs> it would be a whole nother world. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, of course. Um, one has one has to maintain hope you know uh, what's the alternative we cannot give up you know and i still have hope i you know i think this pandemic is is perhaps another form of a wake-up call to see what how how can we reorder our lives to actually make them more sustainable and we're going to have a lot more shocks like this pandemic and the climate crisis of course if we don't start dealing with it immediately is going to be a bigger shock than the pandemic in every respect you know uh, politically economically culturally you know there's rocky times ahead and we really need to um, change the way we live change the way we organize our societies where it's so easy to just be comfortable because we have it so good like everything's so easy, you know, like you hop we've in your car, it. drive to the grocery store. That's not hard to do. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've had it pretty easy for a long time, especially as Canadians. You know, how many Canadians remember the Great Depression or going through the Second World War? I mean, these are become distant memories and the majority of the population weren't around and and our parents who our grandparents who lived through that are dying off and you know our culture is also a little bit against um preserving those memories we live in a instant gratification culture a very commercialized culture uh, kind of shallow entertainments abound uh, too many distractions from reality you might say so maybe we have a cultural handicap in that sense i have to say uh you know that we saw a lot of people who are closer to what i would call indigenous cultures that they you know maybe people who have recently left their indigenous villages and moved into the cities but still have that memory and um, I think those people are perhaps better placed to deal with the shocks that are coming, whether it's climate-related shocks uh, or this pandemic. A lot of these people, even if they live in cities, still have the memory of how to grow their own food and, and how to live a subsistence lifestyle, and they still are connected to their home territories and can return to them. So how many of us North Americans can say that? You know, I don't have a, a home village that I can go back to and grow my own food if I really had to. You know, that, that's an interesting question. Do those kind of people help give you hope? Yes, yes and no. I mean, uh, we met a lot of individuals who are very aware of all these topics we're just now discussing but equally many or more who are focused on becoming middle class you know having a car having a television a refrigerator uh, a job that pays money for all of these consumer goods um, and that's still the dominant message you know in in media you know whether it's uh, print media or electronic media you know, if you watch TV in, in any country, it's, it's, it's all full of advertising, 
you know, selling people their own dreams or creating wants that they didn't know they had. <laughs> I mean, the smartest people and the most creative people are hired by the marketers. And this is, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's a false message. Like it's dis distracting us from the real issues and also distracting us, I think, from the real sources of happiness, which I think is family, uh, friends, uh, conviviality, you know, just spending time with each other. That's the source of true happiness. It's not how many, you know, places on your so-called bucket list that you've ticked off. That's not really the source of happiness. It's being in the moment, being happy in the day, in the place where you are. That to me is true happiness. Did this trip really help you discover that? It reinforced it. Like I, you know, I'm a bit of a philosophical guy to start with, but this trip really brought it home to me in a really immediate sense is your happiness lies in the present moment. It's not, you know, oh, tomorrow I'm going to be in, say, Machu Picchu. That's going to be amazing. No, your happiness is what you're doing right now, where you are, and, and being able to engage with that and, and live it intensely, not thinking back or ahead. Just be there now. That must have been one of the most special things about that trip is just being in the moment in those amazing places and situations. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, uh, traveling slowly on a bicycle gives you an awful lot of time to think, to reflect, almost like a meditative state of mind. And so, for example, in the riding across the Canadian prairies, a uh, landscape that some people, if they've ever driven across the prairies, they think, oh, that's just boring. I can't imagine you know, spending weeks of my life riding a bicycle across that. Well, I have to say, contrary to that, it was not boring. It was actually wonderful to be able to focus on details. Like we were riding across Alberta, Saskatchewan in early summer, midsummer, and the birds, the insects, the flowers, you notice all those things. And if even if you're not focused on that, you just have time to, to just let your mind wander and just let it wander and enjoy that. Uh, it, it was, to me, it was like a dream, you know, and I, I sometimes thought, oh man, there's a tailwind, the sun is shining, there's no traffic out here, the birds are singing. This is just wonderful. Who could ask for more? <laughs> That sounds so great when you when you get into that kind of a moment. Was there any times that, especially in the poorer countries, and when you're when you're going for like like big like stretches, were there any times where it was hard to feed yourself properly? Um. Well, we were. I would say no. You know, there were. Uh, times when the food that was available to us was maybe a little bit monotonous. Uh, you know, people think of Latin America and they think Mexican. Well, Mexico has a very varied uh, 
uh, diet and, and different uh, types of food in different regions. So it, it's kind of a high point for that. But there are other places, let's say Bolivia, up in the high country in Bolivia, pretty simple food, you know, it's potatoes, potatoes, potatoes. Mind you, there's hundreds of kinds of potatoes, so there is variety there too. But, uh, you know, the it's not it's not like going into a supermarket where you have food choices that are just unbelievable. Uh, if you're off the beaten track and it's not a touristic area, then you're just eating what the locals are eating. And to me, it's wholesome, but it's also, it can be quite monotonous. You know, you're eating potatoes day in and day out. Some of those people have potatoes twice a day, morning and evening, and that, you know, that's it. Maybe they have uh, chicken with it sometimes, uh, uh, a guinea pig, uh, you know, but you know, it's, it's a pretty monotonous diet if you, if that's all you you get. How does your body hold up for the, for the four years of just eating whatever you could when you could? Uh, pretty good. I'm an omnivore. I, you know, I think it would be challenge if you were a vegan in some of those country countries, if you know, most of the street food is pretty meat heavy. Uh, but me, I, I didn't suffer. I mean, I started out skinny and I got a little skinnier. <laughs> uh, it's, it's pretty hard to uh, maintain your weight if you're traveling like this. Uh, not that we were pushing it all that hard, but even with rest days and, and weeks off now and then, yeah, you know, it's, I lost a bit of weight, maybe 10 pounds, you know. So I was pretty skinny by the time I finished. Um, but yeah, I, I would say the body held up pretty well. Debbie had a little more trouble with her knees and, uh, it kind of started after that difficult four day hike that we did in Northern Colombia, which was all up and down some of it, muddy trails, and she didn't have very good footwear there. So she had a lot of knee problems that kind of bothered her on and off for the rest of the trip. And, uh, you know, part of that is just we're getting older and wear and tear, and uh, uh, you know that's just that that that's just the way it is. But I would say in general we held up pretty well. <laughs> Did being a doctor ever come in handy? Uh, it came in handy in the sense that I was not too nervous about. Uh, the minor sort of viral and bacterial infections that you might get. You know, I knew that we're going to get gastrointestinal upset every now and then, especially eating exotic food and, and street food and stuff like that. So yeah, when things happened, I was more willing maybe than a, than a lay person would be to let, let it run its course and see how it goes. And invariably we got better. Uh, so we didn't really have to consult with physicians along the way. Uh, yeah, you know, just having that confidence and, and being able to sort of self-diagnose things, it was definitely an asset. <clears throat> when you were in the Andes for so long, was there, did you learn anything from just being in the mountains and being like that connected to nature? Uh, well, I, I, I relearned the fact that I'm a mountain person and I love being in the mountains. Um, yeah, you know, uh, 
I've never really spent time at those altitudes, you know, up around 4,000 meters. The highest we went was just shy of 5,000 meters on our bicycles. And that was tough, you know, just the lack of oxygen and uh, every sort of incline, every bit of climbing, you just felt that lack of energy that comes due to lack of oxygen. Uh, we never actually got altitude sickness because we were traveling for such a long period of time at altitude that we were well acclimatized, but you're still, you know, you don't have the energy that you would have at sea level or at more normal altitudes. So, you know, you definitely need to, uh, needed to reduce your expectations of how much exertion you're capable of at that altitude. Since you're not planning on doing much more flight travel in your life, does that mean you're likely to never go back to a lot of these places? That's correct. Um, I'll be 67 later this year. And, uh, you know, for me to go back to the Andes, and I would love to do it, but it would mean, like, again, taking a few years to be away from home. And I, I can't see that happening. But, you know, I'm really happy uh, to do some traveling that's closer to home. And uh, I consider all of the northern half of BC into the Yukon and Alaska to be my big backyard. And, uh, you know, I can continue to uh, explore in my, in my backyard in that sense. And uh, Debbie and I are actually kind of loosely hoping to make a bicycle ride up to the Arctic Ocean next year. Wow. And, uh, and we would do that as a kind of a loop going up uh, on the Canadian side and then looping back on the way back through Alaska into Denali and maybe finish it off with a ferry ride to help us on our way south. I figured a big bike trip like that would just get into your, would just give you the bug. Like I didn't think you'd just be able to put the bike down after that. Well, you're right about that, Robin. And uh, uh, I'm still inspired. Yeah, I'm totally inspired to go out on another big bike ride. Maybe not four years, but, you know, for some months anyway. What kinds of mountain adventures and river adventures have you and Debbie had in your backyard? <laughs> Oh, plenty, plenty. I'm a passionate skier, do a lot of backcountry skiing. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I chose to come to Smithers uh, 30 odd years ago. And uh, yeah, between the skiing in the winter and the paddling sports in the summer is what brought me here and pretty much has kept me here. And uh, so, you know, I, I used to be a pretty strong whitewater kayaker, including multi-day, you know, descents of remote rivers. Um, in the last years, and since coming back from the bike ride, I've focused more on sea kayaking than whitewater kayaking. Maybe that's a function of how old I'm getting, you know. Whitewater is kind of a young guy's sport. But sea kayaking still... Uh, gets me going. I'm passionate about it. We just recently came back from 16 days paddling out of Kitimat. And uh, it's pretty, it's a really dynamic environment, the marine environment. There's so much out there. 
you know, along the shore, in the water. It never gets boring. Did you see any whales on that trip? Oh, lots. Lots of humpback whales. Uh, we didn't see any orcas this time, but lots of humpbacks. Uh, we saw wolves. Uh, didn't see any bears this time. Uh, lots of bird life. Yeah, there's always something out there. <laughs> That's great. What are some of the things you're most proud of that you've done in your life? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, well, this, is, this wouldn't be considered an adventure, but being a father, that's the thing I'm most proud of. I, um, I think I did a pretty good job as a father. You know, my kids are all close to me. Um, we still go out adventuring together. Uh, actually, just a few days ago, with uh, my oldest and my middle child, we attempted to get to the true peak of Hudson Bay Mountain. We didn't make it. The weather was against us, and it was pretty sketchy at the top. But that's just an example of the connection I, I have with my kids. They're all grown ups now in their 30s and 20s, the three of them. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, that's the single proudest achievement I would say in my life is having brought up these uh, three wonderful kids. Yeah. It seems like you've lived a life where you wouldn't have many regrets, but is there anything that you would tell uh, like a 18 year old Lothar or a 20 year old Lothar looking back <laughs> now? Wow. Um, Wow, that's a tough question. Do I have any regrets? Uh, probably not huge. Um, if anything, I would say don't put off your, your passions or your dreams, you know, and I guess I didn't. I pretty much followed my passions uh, and my dreams and was very lucky by just due to circumstances that I was able to achieve as much as I did. Um, you know, and I, a lot of it is luck, you know, where you're born, when you're born, to whom you're born. These are things you have no control over. And in that sense, I could have said I, 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 I won life's lottery. You know, I was born at a, a great time in a great part of the world. Um, but, you know, I also met people on this journey who were born in much less favorable circumstances, but who have also been able to achieve some dreams, you know, and just by force of will and, and imagination, open your imagination to the possibilities. I think that's actually what holds back most people uh, in life is just a, a lack of imagination or an unwillingness to think outside the box, you know, just being too conventional. You know, everybody thinks, yeah, you just got to achieve success in a career and hunker down and make it happen. But there's so many other things you can do. Uh, let me give you one outstanding example. We ran into a guy from Venezuela and uh, he was going the opposite direction. We were just coming out of Belize into Guatemala. He was going in the opposite direction. And uh, so anyway, anyway, we stopped and talked for quite a while. And he'd already been on the road for three years. He had gone all around South America before he went to Central America. And he had left home with very little, like hardly any money, a shitty bicycle. 
his passion was surfing. So he was pulling a trailer with two surfboards on it. And that was kind of his focus, using the bicycle as the means of traveling, but surfing, you know, going around everywhere surfing. While he was in Argentina, he became a snowboarder. So he spent some time in the mountains, lived with a family. And, you know, I said to them, like, hey, how do you do this? Like, uh, you got no money, you, you know, you, you're still traveling. And he said he just counts on his own ability to find work when he needed it. He very commonly was adopted by different families to help them out on their farm, doing construction projects. Occasionally, he would work in the, say, food service industry at a restaurant. And the guy is still traveling. The last time I checked, he was somewhere in Europe. So he must have been able to get the money together to fly across the ocean and continue his travels over there. Wow. And to me, that was just so inspiring. Here's a young guy in his 20s. He didn't have any wealth, and he was living his dream. Admittedly, it would be a nightmare. His dream would be a nightmare for the other people. He, you know, he didn't have any luxuries. Uh, he was used to sleeping anywhere in his tent. Uh, you know, but if you're an adventurer and you, you don't mind living frugally, you can do anything. Not anything, but you could, there's so much that you can do just with that attitude. And now he'll be so interesting. Like, that's a guy I would love to talk to now. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, he's an outstanding example. But I can remember quite a few people, you know, similarly um, resourceful, you know, in terms of they following their passion to travel and making it work by, you know, for example, selling artworks at touristic sites to fund their further travels, uh, doing art, making handicrafts, taking on odd jobs here and there. There are so many ways that you can make, make it work, you know, and, and traveling doesn't have to be an expensive uh, thing at all. You can, you can live very frugally. Uh, you know, our travels were very economical. Uh, we, we spent, less than some people spend on an all-inclusive holiday for two weeks, you know, and we were, we were on the road for a long time. <laughs> it didn't seem like you spent much money. What were those called? You had, you stayed at people's houses and it seemed like it was prearranged. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, it's an organization called warmshowers.org and it's basically like couch surfing. You've probably heard of couch surfing, yes. but it's uh, specifically for bicycle travelers. And uh, right now, I've, I'm hosting a guy from Slovakia. He's camped in my backyard, uh, and he's having a rest day here in Smithers. He's on his way north up Highway 37. And uh, so we were using warm showers, and this is a great way to connect with local people wherever you are. And it was easy because you have something in common. They're usually people who have done some cycling themselves or are hoping to do some cycling someday. And so you have a shared passion. And just to have a local connection with whom you share something, it's huge, you know, it opens a lot of doors. And sometimes, you know, we'd make a connection through warm showers, and then they would refer us on to their friends who might not be cyclists, but it would be like a network. Now you're in a network. It happened in Brazil, you know, so we, we 
ended up having a family to stay with at the mouth of the Amazon River. And we could leave our stuff there while we went up up the river to Manaus on a riverboat. So we left all our cycling stuff behind and knew it would be there when we come back down the river. So that's just an example. And uh, it, it was a good tool, you know, just for connecting to people. And uh, especially if you're coming into a, a big city, like we ended up going to New York City and uh, connected with a cyclist who lived in Manhattan. Now, you know, for us to go to a hotel in Manhattan would have been outrageously expensive and boring. Hotels are all the same in the end. But it, having a local connection like that, it just, it's great, you know, they'll, they'll tell you where to go, take you to their fa- favorite restaurant, you know, that kind of experience that, that you can't get if you're always just going into a hotel every time. And it must be so nice for you to give back to from all the people that gave to you along your whole way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's part of that uh, web of life, you know, and, and payback and uh, what comes around goes around. So, yeah, we experienced a lot of hospitality and, and now we're back to giving hospitality. And it, it just feels great, you know. You, you know, when you give hospitality, like in this situation, these are cyclists who we'll probably never see again. Uh, and of course, they all say, oh, if you're ever in my country or in my hometown, come, you know, and it may or may not happen. It That's not the point. We're, we're just giving in return for so much that we have received. It It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, totally. I knew you'd want to give back. I could tell from the way you were talking, you'd, you, you'd be excited to give back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to share food and, and just share stories. It's, it's what it is to be human. Absolutely. But, uh, but I'm going to let you go, Lotar. Thank you so much. You were, you were so great. That was so great. Well, I appreciate your uh, interest, Robin. And uh, yeah, anytime, anytime we'll talk again. Thanks. Yeah. There's no rule that says you can't do two. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. See you. Have a great rest of your day. Okay. Thanks a lot, Robin. See you, Lotar. Yeah, you bet. I I was probably more excited to do you than anybody else, though, to be honest. (laughs) Okay. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, (laughs) Thanks very much. Yeah, you betcha. And thanks so much for taking the time to share with me. Okay. Hopefully, you'll inspire people to ride their bikes more, if not, and other things. Well, I've been impressed here in Smithers. That's one of the biggest changes I saw from four years previously when we got back. I noticed, wow, there's a lot of people around town that are using bicycles just to get around, to go shopping, to commute to work. Uh, yeah, it's, it's happening. Okay, All right. adios. All right. Adios. Bye. Bye-bye. My next guest is retired politician Nathan Cullen. Nathan spent 16 years as a member of parliament for the NDP, and before that he worked all over South and Central America and even Africa with non-government organizations. He's got tons of stories from his work. Nathan shows us how good a leader and a politician can be. I'd like to give a very special thanks this episode to my little brother Teo Dow for once again helping me with the podcast giving me the ideas to interview both Lotar and Nathan. So thanks very much, Tay. Also, thank you so much to my girlfriend, Nikki Chamberlain, for showing me how to edit and being super patient with me in the process. Thank you so much for listening to Their Life Story Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Levine. 
Please be sure and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Their Life Story. And if you like the show, rate, review, share, and subscribe. It helps a lot.